ears to good friends. Cheers. 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 Hmm. That's sort of an oaky afterbirth. What was that? She did tell me to uh, get a beer and some cheese fries over at Eskimo Joe's. That's very nice, lovely. I only hope you feel this way when I'm done. Because I could destroy this night in two seconds. Why is that funny? <laughs> well, I think it's a bit funny to be trying to define nothing. <laughs> Smooth as a bourbon on a summer day. Strong as a peated scotch in the winter night. This is a fair warning. The Catholic Man Show is about to begin. Slap some bacon on a biscuit and let's go. We're burning daylight. Welcome to the Catholic Command Show. We're on the Lord's team at the winning side, so raise your glass. Adam Minahan, Adam Minahan here, sitting in studio with David Niles. We are sans Juan this evening, and Jim. It's a lonely day. But we have a good friend, a, a, a guy who has come back for a third time, shockingly... Is this your only against your third all odds. or your fourth? Against all odds. It's third, right? Your third. Diaconate. Okay. Diaconate. Erotic love. And this, so that was... Okay, I, I thought yeah. maybe there was another one in there. No, he waited until he was ordained because he needed extra graces to yeah. come onto our I show. all the graces. He learned the first time, like, I'm not doing that again. <laughs> Without... <laughs> not till I got help. I need, I need backup. Exactly. Deacon Garlic, it's wonderful to have you on the show again. Thanks, guys. Happy to uh, be here. Yeah. Uh, um, we're excited because this is a follow-up to a show that we did, I don't know, maybe sort a couple, couple months well, ago. Well, we, we like mentioned it. We d- actually ended up talking about it. We did end up talking about it for a while. I think on one of the breaks. Yeah. Uh, uh, on Hell. Oh, yes. And, oh, okay. I thought you meant the one where Deacon was here last. No. Yeah, so we did an episode on Hell a while back. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we said on that episode... We, were, that we have... were reading the book at the time, mm-hmm. and that we would do this episode when with we were De- done with Deacon Garlic mm-hmm. when we were done. So we're fulfilling all of our promises, contrary to a episode recently where we were say- where we said that I lied. I'm not lying this time. Did you lie? Well, no, but <clears throat> Deacon Garlic thought that I did. Oh yes, the joke. Yes, that was very funny. <laughs> I'm really glad I was there because it wasn't just Deacon Garlic. It yeah, was I retold that joke to other people, but as a funny story that happened to Adam. Right. I was like, guys, you got to hear this funny story. So my, my good friend Adam told me this funny story about his life. You will never believe true. what happened to him right. with his son. And there I am having a drink with him one night in which he explains to other people while I'm present that he told people this joke one time. That he still ripped off my dad. Yeah. It was, Which I think it was is really actually a testament to my understanding that it was a joke. Otherwise, I would not have brought that up in front of other people. You definitely thought it was a joke. I definitely did. That's why it's so <laughs> funny. Because you did not convey the joke very well. well. Which makes it funnier. It does make it funnier. Like when you people think it's real. I mean, I guess. Yeah, I, I mean, mean today, today, even today in the Chancery Hallway, he told me a story and I asked him like, is this a joke? Is this a joke? Just, no, like I have, to, I have to actually yeah. ask now, right? Yeah. Which is no. fair enough. Like, have you ever have you ever met my dad? I don't know. If, yeah, you probably or, met you probably met him. 
If he ever tells you a story and it starts off with, this is a true story, just be ready. It's not a true it's not story. A true story. Probably yeah, not it's a, a joke. Yeah. What, the only way to know, for people who don't know my dad, is to kind of keep an eye on my mom. Because <laughs> she'll be in the background, either like shaking her head no. Right. Or going, you know, shaking your head yeah. I'm like, believe it or not, it really is true. Well, when Adam told me a story, I had no Haley to look at. Right. To understand whether I was, you know, being lied to by my good friend, mm-hmm. Adam. Fair enough. Uh, before like we, I said, super funny. Super funny. Uh, so, uh, before we get into our whiskey, I do have a, a, a something that we need to cover really fast. Okay, this, um, this sounds... Uh, a little bit more serious. Yeah. Uh, I'm asking for prayers of our listeners for... Uh, a patron member of ours and a uh, fellow a fellow Catholic Mansion listener, Ryan Allman. Uh, he has been experiencing some uh, health problems and is with his wife. He, uh, at new, they've only been married for like two years, uh, and he's he's in um, not not doing well. So we ask for your prayers uh, for him a- and his family. Allman, Allman, yep, uh, Ryan Allman, um, uh, for him and his family. Very good. So yep. I wanted to make sure to Say do that. Say a prayer for him. For, um, his, for his recovery. For his health, yes. Uh, so tonight, Deacon, we are uh, not drinking a peated scotch, which is typically our go-to. Uh, we're, we're drinking a bourbon, so we'll see how this goes. Pot still will it uh, whiskey. Um, it is a sweet bottle, first of all. It looks like a pot still. It, it is a it sweet is, bottle. I it like is it. A, it is a great... Uh, Eastern. It has like an Eastern look to it. But or, yeah, it's a pot still. Right. So uh, it's Willet Reserve. Very well known. Been around for a whole uh, for a very long time. Let's try it. We're on the Lord's team. The winning side. So raise your glass. Cheers. Cheers to Jesus. Uh, very dark color and uh, deep amber tones. Uh, apple, tart, honey, hay, mm. and a little bit of buttered popcorn is what I'm getting on the nose. Yeah, I think it tastes good. Okay, so you have the mm. the, the gym. Is it on the yummy scale? The yummy Jim, sc- I don't Jim. use. I can't borrow the yummy scale. Yeah, okay. That's that's Jim's. Mm-hmm. Mine's just it's good or not. But this is like the sweetest thing I've had to drink that's alcoholic in a long time. It does. It is a it it is sweet for burn. wow brown sugar. Um, yeah. Kind of Danish Danish. The nose. I didn't. I was not expecting it to be so sweet. Just based on smelling it, mm-hmm. but yeah, that's that's a lot of like can- there's like a lot of candy, candied fill in the blank mm-hmm. on the way down. That's fantastic. It'll be, it'll, be, it'll be good. I like it. Do they put sugar in that? Uh, probably so. I think it's a good move. So, uh, Deacon. So recently, we have got a few people together to read some, well, at least one book thus far, The Inferno. But we're we're made attempting. It to one book. We're attempting to to go through uh, a whole series of great books together. Uh, one of them that we've finished already is the Inferno, which we've we, which we've discussed. This mm-hmm. is what we're going to discuss this evening. Um, maybe let's start off with just like the importance of reading books together. Like, what are your thoughts on that? Because you have a heart for this. Yeah, reading books together and and reading great books mm-hmm. together, right? So, yeah, I think that when people talk about the great books. Uh, that kind of means something now today. It's usually a particular curriculum of text that they look at in the Western civilization. The 1950s, people tried to actually like, you know, put together a big set that you could buy, right, that had these great texts. And at the end of the day, what they're trying to look at is like, what are the what are the books in Western civilization, if we want to use that term, that were the most impactful, 
right, that did these things. And so, oh, it's like, oh, it's Plato's Republic, it's these things, it's Aristotle, it's St. Augustine, St. Thomas Aquinas. And one of the things they were trying to do is that a lot of people's educations now don't engage any of these texts. They don't engage these uh, great ideas. Right. You can, you can kind of look at it as there's this wonderful conversation that has happened, you know, over thousands of years. And modern education seems to have just kind of stepped in and cut that off. Mm-hmm. And so you see a lot of people now that, uh, how do I engage in the education? I can't go back to school. I can't restart, you know, my elementary and high school. So how do I do this? And so what ends up happening is like, okay, well, let's read these great texts together. And this kind of serves as a supplement to our modern education. So... I think that, you know, reading this is really good. We come together, we pick these books. And I think that reading them as a group in like a fraternity is really important because a lot of these books are difficult. They are, they're difficult to read. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times they also presume that you have a certain level of education. Sure, right? sure. Uh, and that you've read other or, books. Or, or that you um, know about some of the other books because inside of a lot of these great works, they reference each other. Correct. And you'll, you don't get it. And so like the more I've read... Mm-hmm. these you know specific books when now when they make reference to the other ones occasionally i say oh i know what he's talking about right, right there and all of a sudden it's like wow i would not get the context of that if it hadn't been for the fact that i read this other book which i think that what you're experiencing is one of the great fruits of this right that you yourself are reading a text from some master and you're being able to track what the argument is what the cultured argument there is right uh-huh. Which is another reason why it's important to read the great books in chronological order, mm-hmm. right? Hmm. Because they're dialoguing with one another, right? There's this dialogue that's think actually about that. going through that, right? So when you start to read, you're like, oh, like most people start with Homer. So we're going to read Homer. Why? Well, because in the Greek world, he kind of sets that tone. But then when you get to Socrates, right, and uh, Plato, they're going to be talking about Homer a lot, right? They're going to be talking about what did Homer do correct? What did he do wrong? In the Republic, you know, Socrates is railing against Homer and his poetics and what he's done to the Athenian youth. That doesn't mean anything to you if you actually haven't read the Iliad or the Odyssey. Mm-hmm. So you kind of join this sure. journey, right, of actually going through these texts. And I think that because the great books tend to pull out great themes, right? They pull out these what we would call perennial truths. It's like, how do you love your family? How do you be virtuous? How do you love God? What is true religion? These kind of things then I think what ends up happening is is that it can form you, and then taking those deep conversations and engaging with that kind of iron sharpens iron with other men is really where I see uh, these benefits really come to the surface. So, yeah, I hadn't thought about reading them chronologically. I think that's a really good idea. Um, my approach when I started, is just kind of like what I did, mm-hmm. was that I realized my literature, like who who am I as a literary student? Well, I'm you know, like a second grader or something. So I just pulled from John Senior's hundred or thousand good books right. list, and uh, I found a found where someone had gone through them and recommended, like at different ages. Okay, right. like from five to seven, these are good books. And so I just started at the like the little kid books of his list and started reading there because they are they're very delightful, but you know, just these easy to read stories where I. They weren't over my head. No, they're good. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, one of the things that's really good about getting together also is being intentional about how we meet. And so when we, on the other side of the break, you know, the intention of, of having good food, good drink, how that facil- facilitates good conversation, uh, I think is important uh, when, when gathering together. So we can talk about that and we can jump into the inferno. Good. When we get back. We'll be right back.
Hey, I'm Adam Minahan, and this is David Niles from The Catholic Man Show. And we are so excited because we are going on pilgrimage to Ireland. We're going this September, September 15th through the 24th. We're going to go to some amazing Catholic places in the country. As you know, the Catholic tradition in Ireland is so deep and rich. And while we're there, we're also going to be visiting some distilleries, if you can even imagine that, you know. Us, the Catholic Man Show. So we're going on basically a <laughs> cathedral and distillery pilgrimage to Ireland. It's going to be awesome. And, and because we're going on a, a distillery tours that are not typical for the tourist, Dave, we're not taking a bunch of people. We're not taking 60 people. We're not taking 50 people. We're capping this off at 30 people because we want to be able to That's have it. it. We're, we want it to be intimate. We want it to be able to uh, go to places that normal tourists don't get a chance to go to. Uh, so... Go to selectinternationaltours.com slash catholicmanshow for more information. Welcome back to the Catholic Man Show. I'm David Niles, here with Adam Minahan and Archdeacon Harrison Garlic. Lord Chancellor himself. <laughs> That's where I walk out. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so, um, but, you know, like, as we were talking about, you're a big proponent of the great, the great books. Um, He's a tutor of them. Yeah. yeah in fact, yeah, you, you, kind teach, of. you help teach the great yeah. work, the great books program within the diaconate. Is that Correct. the right way to say it? Uh, through the Alquin Institute. Through the Alquin Institute, yeah. but as a part of the diaconate program. Are you, a, you're a, are you a tutor? Yeah, that's, that's the title they use. Is okay. it like professor? For the Alquin Institute? Is tutor, yeah. yeah. So we're going to be talking about one of these great, great books today. Right. Dante's Inferno. Uh, before we like dive into it, um, the reason I had never read this book is because I had kind of heard that, oh, there's a lot going on in this book, um, a lot of historical context, specific characters who did certain things in history, that if you don't know the history of like these characters, mm-hmm. a, a lot of it's just going to go over your head. Right. Um, so I never read it. And then when you said, hey, let's get a group together, because you're very it's a, it's a book that you're very familiar with. And so several of the other guys in our group had also taught the book before, right? And so it was a really great opportunity to be able to, you know, read it with everybody. It was, and it was really great. But if you don't have that opportunity, what would you say to somebody like, oh, you have no idea, you're just going to pick up this book and read it. Should you try to do it together? Like, what's your recommendation? Well, I think... Yeah, taking a step back, I think the we have to be careful with the great books in a certain way, um, because I think that is that good. Yep. You're good. So I think that the great books uh, can be very misleading and be a trap as well. Hmm. Like they on themselves are not sufficient for wisdom. And what I mean by that is, if you look at the great books curriculum, like it's always going to include uh, Machiavelli's The Prince. It's going to include Marx's Communist Manifesto. It's going to include Freud. Like it's going to include all these things that are actually not good, but mm-hmm. they're in the great books curriculum. And so like one of the things that you'll see is that there's a wrong way to approach the great books, which is, well, I, you know, I've read all these books, right? I've read all these great thinkers. They all disagree, right? Because once you get to the moderns, they start arguing with one another and the modern philosophers and et cetera. I've read everyone and they all disagree and you come out the back end uh, a cosmopolitan relativist. Right, so you make it up for yourself. Right, so it's like, oh, I've read all these people and you know, people might have arguments on Facebook, but I've seen the arguments of philosophers and there's, there's no truth. Mm-hmm. So I think one thing the, to really point out here is that the people who do the great books well and sometimes even shun that title 
are those who understand that um, inside their curriculum, it's Holy Mother Church and Christ, right, who is that light, that then is that standard of truth, and that's what we apply to the great books to get things out of it, right? So whether you're reading Plato's Republic and trying to understand what's true in here, what's not, like what's the filter that I use, or you're reading like The Prince or Communist Manifesto, whatever you're reading, he has to be that light. And it's through that then that we can actually engage the great books, mm-hmm. right? Because if not, they, I think you can kind of go astray on them. The other thing, too, is about the chronological order is that I think Dante particularly is very difficult to read if you haven't come to the table with a lot of that education. And I don't mean to, like, disparage people from reading it, but the problem is is that, you know, he assumes you know Greek and Roman mythology. He assumes that you're classically educated. He assumes you know Scripture really well. Which was the education at the time. Correct. That was the, you know, so his right. audience would have been. Outside of Scripture, he pulls from Aristotle more than anyone else, Right. And then, even if you're very well educated in all those things, it's like, oh, by the way, here's a gigantic dose of, you know, 13th century Florentine politics that no right, one knows, exactly. yeah. <laughs> except for people who study Dante. And nobody right? nobody would know right. if it hadn't been in this book. It's like, well, why, like, why did that, why is, who's this guy that's in hell? It's like, oh, well, that was the mayor at the time that Dante was there, and Dante didn't like him, so now he's burning in hell right. for, you know, this sin. It's like, do we know anything about him? Nope. We only know that he's in that, that hell. Right. And so Right. The only reason the Gelfs are relevant today is because, like, well, you need right. to know what Dante's talking about in this book. Exactly. And so it, it, so that can be a little a little daunting, I think. So I think that, you know, finding someone that you can read it with, I think that fraternity is, is really big, someone that can lead you through it. I think also not getting frustrated because Dante particularly has multiple different layers. And like what I usually tell people at the beginning is don't worry about the Florentine politics. Like you can get the moral thing out of it. Don't worry about trying to figure out yeah. who everyone is and et cetera. Like you can set that to the side. Pick up on the biblical illusions right? You'll, you'll get those. Sure. Greek mythology, you can kind of pick up as you go, right? Just wait, who's this character? Because it, it's never like super in-depth. It's just like, who's this god? Who's this creature? Why are they used here? Mm-hmm. A little bit of scratching of the surface of Greek mythology can get you there. But then, yeah, I think you've, you've got to find um, someone to kind of study with and build that fraternity and discuss these things. I mean, the natural method of learning is question and answer. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, and I think, okay, so the edition we went through was the translation by Mark Musa, Correct. Which is um, also an important thing. Uh, also, that's important. Yeah, you need to get a good translation. I know Anthony Eslin um, also. And it was nice that in our little group we had different the different translations. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's not so much the translation. That does make a difference, but it's the notes Correct. that they have. So like, even if you don't know anything, you still actually could get a lot out of the book by yourself just because there's all these notes. Um, you know, So like, if mm-hmm. you are just... I don't want someone to be discouraged, like, oh, I don't have a group to read it with. I guess I'll just never read that book. No, actually, you can. And Adam, what was the book you got that really was uh, like a yeah, companion Tan, yeah, to go along with Tan it? Yeah, Tan puts out a book. Um, it's by a priest. I can't remember off the top of my head, but um, it, it, it's uh, Avoiding the Inf- Inferno. Avoiding? The Inferno. Okay, like don't go uh, to hell. Right. Gotcha. Uh, but it's published by Tan, if you if you look that up. Okay. It, it's, a great, it's a great companion. So I didn't want to spend too much time on that, and we're... Yeah. It was a long time already. but So let's just jump into the book. Um, Deacon, what is the setting? Right. So Dante's Inferno, right? He writes the Divine Comedy, or just the comedy. And the, the general premise, right, is that uh, people make distinctions between Dante the poet and Dante the pilgrim, right? Mm-hmm. So the author, and then, you know, he's the protagonist of his own story. And so... Dante the Pilgrim, right, he very famously finds himself lost in the woods, right, the beginning of the text. Uh, he's he's uh, wandered away from the straight and narrow and kind of very clear allusion to his life uh, falling into disorder. And so then he's going to go on this journey. He's going to go on this journey through hell 
and then up through purgatory, and then finally ascend uh, into heaven. And so the Divine Comedy, you know, has, you know, the Inferno, Purgatory, and Paradise, right? And he's going to go on this this journey. It's it's not a private revelation. It's not like a mystic. It's not like this. He's not trying to describe the landscape of hell. I think people get wrapped around the axle on this and kind of confused about like what he's trying mm-hmm. to do and like this is not you know what the church teaches about like this particular right. thing or whatever. So I think like if people say, well, like what's the what's the general purpose of the text? Like why did he write this? I think that um, a good way to discuss it is just simply it's it's a catechesis in virtue, is mm-hmm. what it is. It, it's a catechesis in virtue. I mean, I think that no one. I think, you know, outside of maybe St. Thomas Aquinas in a systematic way, but when it comes to like a poetic way, I don't think anyone sits here and can describe the soul and why the soul falls into sin, right? Because we have all these dialogues, he's going through hell, he's talking to people that are in these circles, and he's talking with them, why are you here? And I think he masterfully kind of unpacks why souls choose evil mm-hmm. and why they do that. And then when he goes to purgatory, he'll do the same thing, but like, why are they seeking this purification? How are they trying to root this sin out, Right. And then when he gets to paradise, right, he's having these same things about their how they've won the race, how they've done these things. So I think it, it helps to understand virtue, and then throughout the text, because of how he structures it, uh, it, it really can serve as just like a general catechesis and examination of your own soul. Who is the, who is Virgil, and why is he important in this story? Yeah, that's a good question. So uh, Dante, through this, right, Dante, uh, the poet, is this just brilliant, brilliant man. Dante, the pilgrim, it's kind of this sheepish, um, you know, he's, he's, he's swooning in hell, he's passing out, right? He's making mm-hmm. wrong decisions. So he needs a guide. And so when, the dark, when he's in the dark woods, he runs into Virgil. Virgil is the uh, famous Roman poet. Um, and so he, Virgil also famously um, in the Aeneid wrote, the Aeneid wrote, uh, his protagonist also goes through the underworld, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he's also Italian. So there's like deep connections, I think, uh, between them, and we can parse that out more if you want. But he's the guide, and so he'll take him all the way down through hell and then up through purgatory. And then when he gets to purgatory, uh, you know, Dante uh, comes from limbo, which is part of hell, and so he's technically damned, and so he can't go into heaven. And so then... Uh, Virgil comes from limbo. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, and then uh, Virgil hands Dante over uh, to Beatrice, this woman who's kind of haunted the first two volumes uh, a little bit. And somewhat mysterious, and then she is his guide almost all the way up to the beatific vision, and then it's actually Saint Bernard of Clairvaux, if I recall correctly, that mm-hmm. actually can show him the beatific vision. But that's in like whole other book. Yeah, so that's we're getting up into paradise. That's the whole right? comedy, which is in three books: Correct. Inferno, Purgatorio, mm-hmm. and then uh, Parad- Paradiso. Right. So one way to look at it is that uh, what Dante does here, if the purpose of the text is to explain virtue and say, okay, what's why does the soul seek these things, etc.? Then Dante the Pilgrim really represents humanity. That's what he represents. He mm-hmm. represents uh, the human condition. Virgil then will represent human reason, and kind of the best of human reason. Depri- as, a pa- as a pagan, yeah, deprived of grace, right? Right. And you see this played throughout because as Virgil, a, he, he's even, a virtuous pagan, right? Because yeah. Virgil, like when it comes to like uh, Jesus and things like that, whenever he's not, he has not been exposed, obviously, to the beatific vision, he, he, he doesn't know exactly how to explain it throughout the text. Yeah, if he ever bumps into grace, he usually tries to explain it in like pagan and imperial Roman terms, yeah, right? right? When the emperor came, right? Because Limbo and Dante's um, understanding of hell, right? Limbo is the limb, right? It's the edge of hell. And basically it's a paradise, but deprived of the beatific vision. 
And so it's the same paradise that was Abraham's bosom. So like Adam, Eve, Moses, all these people were there along with all the virtuous pagans when Christ came. And then Christ only liberated some of them right. to go to heaven. Those, so, those who were part of the covenant. Right, those who... And, and maybe others. And but, others, yeah. right? Dante's uh, understanding of salvation is, is fascinating. And so, you know, they get to go up to heaven, and so Virgil's sitting there seeing this thing happen, and he talks about this, you know, great emperor, this great lord that came and liberated them. Right. Where He, he understands that he is, like, where the power resides. Right. He is, like, the one who has But power. he didn't know exactly how to articulate yeah, it. Yeah, but I don't know who that guy was, but he is the one who could <laughs> do anything he wanted. Right. Uh, one of the interesting things about the Inferno, though, is how he... Dante structures hell. So when we get back, let's talk about like how yeah. he structs it, structures it, and how it's different from how we would think he would. Does it sound okay? Sounds great. Okay. You gave me a look. I wasn't sure. Oh no, that's great. Okay. We'll no, be right back. Perfect. We'll be right perfect. Back. Absolutely perfect. We have successfully given away 100 subscriptions, and Mark's going to do it again. Listen. Mark Lozano over at Christ Center Capital is doing something absolutely crazy. We talked about it. He, he said, this is something I want to do. I said, okay, if that's what you want to do, let's move forward. Let's do it. 50 people, the next 50 people who sign up using promo code TCMS2022, that's TCMS2022 over at ChristCenterCapital.com gets an absolutely free subscription to Christ Center Capital. Christ Center Capital is a watchdog site for Judeo-Christian investors. So if you're looking to put your money in an ethical way and get sound advice from Mark Lozano, go to ChristCenterCapital.com. Use promo code TCMS2022. The first 50 people who do so get a free subscription. We want to thank Mark Lozano and Christ Center Capital for being a sponsor of The Catholic Man Show. Welcome back to the Catholic Man Show. Here with Deacon Harrison Garlic, Chancellor of the and in-house counsel of the Diocese of Tulsa in Eastern Oklahoma. Also tutor of the great books of the Alcorn Institute for Catholic Culture. I love Catholic culture. It's my favorite culture. Big fan. Big fan. That's probably a good thing. I think it's the best culture of all the cultures. Uh, one yeah. of the thing, one of the things that we talked about before the break was how Dante structures hell. How how he, the the idea of how he was going to structure hell when I first started was like uh, I thought it'd be the uh, the deadly sins, right? Like it seems like that Dante would just yeah. that's easy. That's probably you what just, I would have done. You just kind of like it it, it kind of writes itself so to speak. Mm-hmm. It or like, like venial sin into like medium. Medium sense, like yeah, Those like medium, medium sense. like pass through medium the, venial through medium, heavy venial, right medium. Into, the, into the heavy medium. <laughs> yeah, uh, but that's not what he does. In fact, no. the first uh, circle of hell really shocked me. Uh, me too. Uh, well, the vestibule, and then the first circle of hell. Yeah, but the vestibule—that's like that's. Uh, what, yeah, what? so there's there's the he that's, has so he has the gate of hell, right? Uh, which is kind of a study in of itself because it talks about hell primal love moved it into its creation then you have the vestibule of hell which is basically all of the lukewarm people right so heaven doesn't want them hell doesn't really want them so they go to hell because there's not like a middle ground but then right. they're like stuck outside of hell and so they're milk toast kind of lukewarm people people and, who wouldn't pick a side right and so now they have to march behind a banner for all god's eternity. vomit so to speak yeah a yeah, banner that's, that's like that's, moving around. they have right. to chase it then the first circle of hell is limbo right and then the second circle... Wait, Limbo is actually the first circle? Mm-hmm. Okay. 
Yeah. Yeah. And then the second circle is, I think, the one that shocks people. Right. Was you, this is your all's first time to read it. So, like, what did you think? Well, so if I, if you were to ask me, <clears throat> where does lust belong? Well, hold on. Before you do that, I think you should talk about uh, your confrontation that you had basically with... Uh, no, I want to save that for the end. <laughs> you guys, it's the like very th- beginning. That's, no, no, no. Are you talking about like where I think limbo, limbo. belongs? Yeah. No, 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 because that's just my own my own thoughts. And let's save that. Uh, okay. Save it for the end. Like if, if you're listening to this on radio, you need to subscribe to the podcast so you can hear uh, my thoughts and, and, and my contribution to theology that I made okay. uh, because I made a substantial... Uh, I basically invented a new de- a new eternal yeah, destination. So I I agree with skipping that towards the Let's end. Let's put it at the end. <laughs> okay, uh, that's, that's where I think. Okay, so okay. But, so the, the, in the very well, what seems like the first circle, like it's actually the second circle of hell, as Deacon was just saying. Uh, but hell proper mm-hmm. is uh, the lustful, which right away, just as a, a modern, modern a modern yeah. man, surprised me because I would have thought, oh, lust, that's got to be one of the mm. worst sins. Okay, but we've got an assumption going on. So why, like, so we've got the top of hell, right? So the assumption is, because we get to parse that out, right, is that as, hell's a pit. And right. so as you go Very deeper... Good. Yeah, the structure is that the deeper you go, right. the more depraved right. the sin is. The severity of the sin and the severity of the punishment attached to it. Right. right? So limbo... Oh, these guys that were virtuous, basically their punishment is deprived of the beatific vision. Right, but there's no actual, like, suffering. You know, there's not, like, a physical suffering yeah. that's it's going on. It's basically almost the, the Greek version of heaven, right? It's the Elysian fields. It's like these fields, there's a castle, yeah. you know, et cetera. But yeah, yeah, then you get into, like, oh, well, what's the second, like, least severe sin? Lust. Lust. Which was just very... Mm-hmm. Weird. Very weird for me. Um, I don't know... I'm curious to, you know, there's no way we can know. We can only speculate. But if Dante had been alive today, if he would still put lust there, I suppose he might, but maybe not. You know, mm-hmm. as someone, I grew up listening to the theology of the body. Okay. Right. My parents, like, would play it in the car when we were kids. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm not kidding. I grew up as a child, right. like 10 years old, right. listening to Christopher West. Uh, talk this about makes so much sense about now. the theology of the body. <laughs> so much sense, and uh, so like lust. It's like that's it's this terrible sin, right? So, so to encounter Which it right it is, at the beginning, just, it is a terrible just, sin, right? Yeah. yeah, I mean it's it is one of the de- one of the deadly sins, right? So I think yeah. So it's just like well, actually, it's it's you know kind of like a discussion on great books. Like where do you start? If you're an adult, well, you start with these texts. You start reading Plato. If you're a child, well, you start with the fairy tales, right? Uh-huh. So all of a sudden, there's a distinction in uh, what is the ordering principle of this thing, right? So the question is, well, then how does Dante actually order hell? So I think that one of the reasons that we think, um, not to take away from lust, but I think one of the reasons that particularly we're post Fatima, right? More souls are going to hell because of lust than any other reason. Yeah. So, but Dante doesn't structure it by what it's sin popularity, right? What sin actually causes the most people to go to hell? His general structure, just kind of like to kind of you know skip to an overall view. His general structure of hell is which sins are contrary to love, mm-hmm. and in his view, lust is the closest to love, right? And kind of what he means by that is the top, the sins all at the top of the inferno deal with incontinence. They deal with um, particularly your inability to moderate pleasure, natural desires. Because that's the thing is that your sexual desires are a natural thing. Right. You're not perverting 
necessarily like your appetites. You, they are, you are perverting your appetites mm-hmm. with lust, but it seems from it seems like it's actually very close to the way we're made from just on a natural level. Well, one of the ways that, that Dante structures hell, because yeah, it is interesting when you look at it, it, you can't fit it into kind of a natural uh, breakdown of sin that like children memorize, right? Like mm-hmm. the seven deadly sins and things like that. So you've got to kind of dig a little deeper into why he orders them. And so what you'll see with uh, the Inferno is that the top sins are all uh, taught by the towards the top of the Inferno are all sins of incontinence. So they're dealing with your inability usually to moderate something that is pleasurable. So you're going to get lust, you're going to get greed, you're going to get uh, problems with wealth, whether that's hoarding or spending, these kind of things. And that's distinct then from what he will talk about of sins that have to do with malice, right? So you actually have like malice towards someone else. And then you start getting into things like violence, you know, wrath, Mm -hmm. suicide, these types of things. And then he gets into uh, malice as obviously expressed through violence, but then malice as expressed through fraud. Mm-hmm. This is right. kind of something that's really interesting for Dante is that he basically says, listen, malice is worse than sins of incontinence. And then what kind of malice is worse? Well, there's violence, but a beast can also be violent. Like we can be violent, um, but a beast can also be violent. But beasts typically don't engage in like fraud, right? They don't deceive one another, right? And so the pits of hell end up being, particularly circle eight and nine, end up being reserved for those who engage in uh, malicious fraud, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's like eight is simple fraud. um, And so we think about, you know, he he has even flatterers. I mean, when I first read the Inferno, that was the one that threw me for a loop. So like flatterers. Yeah, it's like, okay, so up here. Because they were like, Right at the bottom, <laughs> like they're, they're of their particular yeah. like realm. They're like in circle eight, and like okay, I'm pretty sure we just had like tyrants, like boiling in a river of blood, and like Genghis Khan, right, was and, up there much higher. Right, so you 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 know rape and pillage half of the known world. Okay, you're not as bad as the guy who flatters someone, right? Right. And so, which is also trying to parse out, you know, what he's doing there, um, which I think in, in a lot of ways is, is getting us to understand the nature of sin and what's actually most depraved for us as humans who have an intellect, who are made in the image of God, who can reason. And so mm-hmm. there's certain sins that are reserved for us because uh, we have an intellect. And one of those is betrayal, dece- like deceit, fraud. Mm-hmm. And so those he puts at the very end or very bottom in the pit of hell. And so, yeah, he has simple fraud, like people who flatter, people who, um, uh, he has like uh, pimps down there. He has uh, people who seduce people. He has... Um, grifters. Yeah, grifters. He has, I can't think of the word right the now. Counterfeiters. The fortune tellers. Those are the ones. Fortune that's one tellers, of the, yeah. Those are one of the punishments that's the worst, right? So then in the ninth circle, he has complex fraud, which are those who betrayed people they had a special relationship to. People who betrayed their family, people who betrayed friends, people who... Um, you know, and then eventually uh, betrayed uh, their lords, right? Their own benefactors. And mm-hmm. so there in the very pit of hell, you have Satan who betrayed God, right? right. And then in his mouth, he has three mouths. Yeah, traitors it, is the bottom, you could right. say it. Yeah, yeah this is the traitors is the very bottom, uh, which is frozen, which is another thing that throws people for a loop, right? It's not fire, it's frozen. Yeah, which there is plenty of, most of hell is hot and on fire, right? except for the very bottom. Yeah, it's cold, which deals with like the nature of evil as a privation of the good, right? Mm-hmm. It's a lack of something. Right. 
And so, yeah, then Satan, uh, his description of Satan is kind of famous. Uh, Satan is this gigantic character because he pulls from mythology and scripture. And so the two creatures that um, fought against their rightful lords were the giants against the gods and the angels um, uh, against our Lord, right, against God. And so he becomes this kind of uh, mashup between the two, right? He's this giant demon. And then he has uh, one head, three faces, and then in each... Uh, mouth, he is crushing uh, a, a soul, right? A person. And so on the two sides, he has those who betrayed Julius Caesar, see, kind of seeing as the top betrayal uh, in the empire, in the political, in the natural, right? Mm-hmm. To betray the top person, right? The emperor. And then in the middle, uh, the other two are facing outward, right? Getting munched on. And there's one soul that's facing inward with just their legs uh, sticking right. out. And the, the other two on the out, their feet are being chewed on or their legs their head out their head out yes their, their heads are out and then there's one in the middle being eaten in the middle with his uh feet his head dangling in. out yes. yes his head in and then that's uh judas right who betrayed our lord right the grace the supernatural so i think that when you look at the structure overall just in a very quick way he's trying to structure this according to contrary to love but then he has kind of this uh scheme that a lot of people aren't completely familiar with, which is that sins of incontinence are not as bad as sins of malice, and then in malice, sins of violence are not as bad as sins of fraud. Right. Yeah, so you have things like people who murder are higher in hell than uh, people who charge interest to one another. Yeah. Or fortune tellers. Which we got sidetracked big time (laughs) when we were reading this book. Shut up, Eli. Shut up, Eli Stone. All right. I want to talk about contrapassos when we get back. That sounds great. There's a common thread among thousands of formerly sinful people we now call saints. They had a relationship with God, which then inspired them to set the world on fire, as St. Catherine and Siena put it. But more importantly, and more specifically, it meant they put in the time. They sat with the Lord. They spoke with him. They listened to him daily. They unveiled their hearts and wounds and problems to him. They offered him thanks and gratitude. They left their sufferings with him on the altar. They begged for his help. My question to you is, are you putting in the time? I know that I've sat in front of the church or sat in adoration, making this mental grocery list of things that I want. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about time to build a consistent, honest relationship, time to speak, and time to listen. Dave and I have talked about on the show before that if you don't have an adoration hour once a week, are you really taking your faith life seriously? Are you really taking your prayer life seriously? But sometimes uh, you need a guide to help you in this holy hour. And so Exodus 90 has specifically put together a guide for you to help with your holy hour. In the show notes, you'll find a simple breakdown that shows you how to structure your time with the Lord. So this guide is also mobile-friendly. If you go to exodus90.com slash TCMS, that's TCMS, the Catholic Man Show, exodus90.com slash TCMS, you can get a free mobile-friendly guide on how to structure your holy hour. Highly recommended. Go check it out. Welcome back to the Catholic Man Show. I'm David Niles, here with Adam Minahan, Deacon Harrison Garlic. We're talking about the Inferno. So we've kind of laid out the general structure of, right. of hell in Dante's Inferno, how he lays it out. And once again, it's not he's not insinuating that hell is actually laid out this way, but I think it is 
um, it's the whole thing is symbolic, right? Of of the moral life of allegorical. Allegorical. Well, it could be allegorical, but it doesn't matter. It's it's just I think it's intended to cause you to think about sin in general and its consequences. And I, that I think brings us to a good transition into the contrapasso. I don't know. It's my assumption that contrapasso is Latin for against the passion. Uh, it will probably be. He wrote. He he didn't write it in Latin. He wrote it in Italian. But the word Italian. contrapasso. I mean, it could be Italian, an Italian yeah. word, but it sounds also Latin. But uh, it doesn't mean against the passion. Yeah, I think. Well, when you look at how it's used, particularly like in this, right? It's it's contrary. Like if you look at passions, particularly in a negative, right, of things that uh, can lead us into sin. Then yeah, the contrapasso is that which is actually contrary to that, and it plays out in in different ways, and because it plays out differently in the purgatory than it does in the inferno. So in the inferno, though, what this means is is that in every circle, every circle is designated for a particular sin, right? So we talked about earlier: there's yeah. limbo, there's lust, there's greed, there's you know violence, things like this. So then, in every single one, the punishment is tailored towards that sin. And this is where I think you see a lot of Dante's genius start to come out is, okay, then how would you show someone being punished for that sin? And particularly in Inferno, what he's very good about doing is how do you show that someone has been given over to this sin, right? That this sin has absorbed them and taken them over. Yeah. Because you actually get contrapassos in the purgatory as well, but there they're purging the sin. Mm -hmm. And that's a big step conversation of like, wait, why are these people punished like this for this sin in hell, but purged for it like this in purgatory, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But in the inferno, they're being given over to the sin. So, you know, I think one of the... So they, well, they've given themselves over right. to the sin. <clears throat> so probably one of the best examples of this is right off the bat, which is the lustful, right? So the lustful are uh, battered about by great winds, right? You have this storm. I remember the first time I read it, I was just like, okay, um, there's a storm... And they're being punished, you know, because again, I thought lust, like, oh, this has to be really bad. They're on fire, and it's a really hot fire, you know, something right. like, right? Something like, yeah, I had a really kind of like, like, like their, their yeah. nether regions will be like on fire, or you know, like <laughs> something, right? You know, like it'll be specific, right? Yeah, I, I, I just kind of thought like, I don't know, I, I, I wouldn't have picked being blown about right. by the winds, but I, I like it. I mean, I think it works. So what ends up happening is, is that you, for lack of a better term, you can kind of reverse engineer these contrapassos to say, oh wait, Dante's teaching me something. These right. contrapassos are catechetical to the soul and its relationship to the sin. So then obviously in uh, the lustful, what they're showing is that throughout their life, you know, the passions move you, right? Um, they affect you, they move you. And so these people gave over uh, to their passions. They were lustful. And so now when they suffer in hell, they're being blown around by the wind. So how mm -hmm. they treated their soul is now how they right. are treated in hell. Because a passion is something that's like comes from outside of ourselves. You know, like the word passion. It's not something that we necessarily choose to do. It's an external thing that we choose not to control, right? So we allow ourselves to be blown about by our passions in the same way that these people in hell are being blown about. Instead of, instead of striving for self-mastery, Right, we're resigning ourselves to these external like desires. They're not really external because you know they're not coming from you know the world and nature. But it's not something that we're like, oh, I think I'm going to be lustful today, right? Correct. It's something that like, oh, it, we just kind of happens, and you choose not to control it. Yeah. So I think w one question between the will and the passions is like, where does the movement start? 
Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so like, I don't know why, but it seems like the perennial example is like you're walking down the street and you, you're choosing to walk down the street, right? That's something your will, like that movement started with you, but then you smell uh, freshly baked bread. You don't have to make, you don't have to will yourself to be drawn towards the bread. You don't have to yeah. will yourself to salivate. You don't have to will yourself or to be hungry all right. of a sudden. All of a sudden, like you weren't hungry before. Right. So that movement, that interior movement, right, that's that's triggered right by the senses, uh, starts to move you before you even make a decision to be moved. And right, like as you said, the mastery is like, okay, well then how is my will strong enough then to take command back over the soul, mm-hmm. right? Under the under the direction of the intellect to rein these passions back in. And we're not Stoics, so the passions are good, right? Christ exhibited passions right. uh, when he was on earth. But then the lustful, going back to Contrabasso, what they've done is the way yeah, the way they treated their soul on earth is now how they're treated in hell. Mm-hmm. They're blown around, just like they allowed their soul to be blown around. What are, so, some, other, like, what are some other ones? Because you guys read the book for the first time, so what are well, like some other ones okay, that stood out to you? Uh, obviously, the schismatics. <laughs> um, right. I, I also like the fortune tellers. Right. Well, tell, tell us, so tell us about the schismatics. So the schismatics are all in this big circle. They're what kind of walking around uh, in a big circle. And as there's a demon, and as they come to the demon, he has a sword, right, or yeah, something. something. And he like basically just cuts him open. And they each have the like their own way that they're cut open according mm-hmm. to the way that they caused schism on Earth. Um, for, that's where Muhammad, right? He's correct. Yeah, so he's here, and basically Muhammad has cut open. Uh, the whole book is graphic. Okay, uh, mm-hmm. like we talked about several times, they will never make a movie. At least of, not an honest one. Right. Um, so Mohammed is cut open like from the neck, like basically all the way down past, down the middle, like past his legs kind of, where his guts spill out every yeah. every time. And as they continue to walk, they're reintegrated. And so that by the time they get back to where the demon is again, they're all put back together mm-hmm. and they can be cut open afresh. So... Uh, so, like, what does that teach us about schismatics? It, it, that they are cutting open, dividing the body of Christ. Right. So, who's the guy whose head gets cut off? I, can't, I know. I was just thinking about that. Who he, is that? That's the line, right? That you that the contrapasso is actually used uh, explicitly, right? He holds up his own head and says, "You know, behold in me the perfect contrapasso." Right. Right. Yeah, I'd have to go back and actually remember who it was, but that's where it actually uses contrapasso. That's where the word, because that's where the word comes from, is I am the... It's one of the few times he actually uses it explicitly. The word contrapasso, yeah, right. he says it explicitly there. So, and the idea is that he's having his head cut off. Um, was he, he was, uh, was it, it wasn't area, no. He's just some schismatic, But right? he was a proponent of, of something that was like really dividing the church at the time. Correct. And so he's having his head cut off as if like he's separating, Christ is the head mm-hmm. of, in the body of Christ. He's separating Christ from the rest of the church. That's why schism right. is such a bad idea. It's so so terrible. And in fact, um, heresy is way higher in right. the inferno than schism mm-hmm. because the schismatics, they're not, they don't actually necessarily believe in a, like, you, you, I mean, you could at least give Arian a break that you could give him the, you could at least say, well, maybe he honestly, like, believed the things that he was this Arian heresy, right? And, you know, he's just really trying to do what's right, okay? If you're just going to go really, really far and give him the benefit of the doubt. But the schismatics, that's not really necessarily the case. Often it's more for political gain or mm-hmm. so, more self-interested than well, that. Well, it's interesting that Dante then, right, if you look at where they are in hell, he he merges them with malice, right? There's yeah. this violent nature to them. Yeah, I, 
they have a great contrapasso. I think some other ones, you mentioned the fortune tellers. Uh, yeah, they're, it's interesting because I would say that Dante's Inferno as a whole is not um, a graphic text, right? I don't think he actually goes into a lot of detail, but as we kind of mentioned earlier. But there are a few times. You can tell when Dante does not like a sin. Dante right. the poet, right? He's like, I do not like the sin. And it, he will all of a sudden become incredibly vulgar. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Describing like, here's this person and I cannot describe to you how vulgar like they are right now. So, or um, he's just like very intricate. You can tell you took your time, like correct. simony, right? Uh, the 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 priest being pocketed. Yeah. So ex- so explain that one because that's a great that's a beautiful one actually. So you know simony is like selling uh, either things that are holy or he he kind of re- really refers to it as selling church office. Right. You know, t- to me, I more like today. I think we tend to think of simony as more selling a relic. Correct. You know, selling of a relic, but it. He's saying, okay, these are bishops or popes who are taking money in order to like, oh, you want to be a cardinal? All right, give me a thousand dollars and I'll make you a cardinal. Um, and so they're pocketing money in order to, you know, dole out these gifts. And so in hell, they're being pocketed. They're going like head first into this like hole. Yeah. And while they're the if they're the most recent addition, head first into the hole, their feet are being burned right yeah like yeah they're, yeah, they're still sticking their out. head their feet are sticking out and they're like being burned in flames until the next person comes and pushes them a little bit further down right. their feet aren't being burned anymore but now they're like totally trapped in this hole as yeah. they continue to get pushed further and further in mm-hmm. as more souls come and they seem also they seem to know the it was kind of interesting to see how mm-hmm. souls in hell according to dante know that when the next one's what, coming. What their knowledge is. Yeah, they know the future to a certain degree. In, to a certain degree, right. right. And then but they don't know the, the current state of events. Correct. They can only see the future. Yeah, so I, I think that's one of the best ones. Uh, the fortune tellers, right? That uh, That's another one where he kind of spends his time describing them, right? They're marching around in a circle and their heads are twisted all the way back around, right? They thought they could see into the future, so their heads right. are twisted. All, and he talks about them weeping and their tears going down their back and uh, over their butt. Mm-hmm. Right, and spends like great detail in explaining this kind of like horrific scene. Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's like so many uh, good ones. Even like you know, even ice at the bottom, mm-hmm. right, showing like this almost complete depravity of the warmth uh, of God's love, right at the at the end, uh, and also then just evil as a as a privation, a lack of something, right, like cold as a lack of of warmth. Um, yeah, I mean, the contrapassos I think are really when I tell people to read the first time. The contrapasso is where I tell people to focus because that's where you're really getting this dialogue of like, okay, what is the sin? How are they punished for it? And what is it that I can learn from how this sin is actually punished? Yeah, yeah. If you're listening on the radio right now, check out thecatholicmanshow.com. We'll continue this conversation with Deacon Harrison Garlic, Chancellor and in-house counsel of the Diocese of Tulsa in Eastern Oklahoma. Deacon, it's great to have you on as always. Thanks, guys. And uh, we'll continue this conversation on the podcast. We're on the Lord's team. The winning side. So raise your glass. One of the interesting things I thought that happened throughout uh, the Inferno was how Dante 
reacted to the people in hell. Right. Uh, you know, so he's going through and he's sometimes he's talking to people uh, in hell. Sometimes Virgil says like, nope, we're not talking to these people. This isn't good for you. We're going to move forward. We're going to just move on. Uh, but how he talks to people in hell at the very beginning, he has like all this pity for them. Oh man, uh, I can't believe he like poor so-and-so. I can't mm-hmm. believe he's dealing with this right now. Uh, and then as, as it goes on and he gets deeper and deeper in hell, and I think there's a, a maturity that happens through, to Dante the poet, he starts realizing the justice that is happening in hell and not necessarily taking pity upon the people mm-hmm. in hell. Yeah, he, yeah, he's somewhat famously at the end of, you know, because he goes through the vestibule. I think he's already passed out at least once by that point. And then he goes through uh, Limbo. And then when he gets to the Lustful, it's like, yeah, he, he dialogues with uh, Francesca, right? And yeah, he, he's totally seduced by her. Right. He's, he, he he's is like totally. So, you know, Francesca and Paolo, there's, there's these lovers and they fell into lust and now they're kind of intertwined in this hellish embrace being passed around and, you know, battered by the winds in hell. And she tells uh, her story to him. And, yeah, he falls for it. I mean, he he has pity for it. Yeah, that the word, the operative word, um, usually throughout the text, particularly Moose's translation, is pity. Mm-hmm. Right? When is he having pity? And it's interesting because there's an ordered pity and a disordered pity. And so with the ordered pity, because uh, the whole comedy starts with pity, right? The mm-hmm. Blessed Virgin Mary has pity on Dante. There he is, like an idiot. Lost in the woods, he doesn't know where to go. He's scared. He's he's fallen from grace, and she has pity on him. Mm-hmm. It's an ordered pity to help him. And then he goes into hell, and he starts having pity on the souls that are there. And I think this is a very challenging thing as uh, moderns because we read this we're like, "Oh, that's a horrific situation," and we do we pity them, right? Mm-hmm. We feel sorry for them, mm-hmm. and we think, "Oh my gosh, how could they suffer this terrible fate?" And I think what Dante the poet plays out throughout. Um, the kind of maturation of Dante the Pilgrim throughout the Inferno is that we have to align our understanding of justice with the divine wisdom. And mm-hmm. what Dante the Pilgrim doesn't understand at the beginning is that when he comes into hell and he's you know seduced by someone and there's this pity and he falls for that and he he even you know swoons and passes out again. When he pities them, what, you know what you're saying is you shouldn't be here or this shouldn't be happening to you. Right. I I would alleviate you. From, from this, this. right. And what he doesn't realize at the beginning of the inferno is that's placing him contrary to divine wisdom. Mm-hmm. Divine wisdom has placed the souls in hell. They have merited that damnation. They're in the soul. They're in the circle that uh, providence, uh, ultimately through King Minos, has placed them. And to say I would alleviate you from this is actually uh, a sin. You're placing yourself contrary to divine wisdom, and it's it's completely contrary to us as moderns. Right, because totally. that, that, that's what you hear a, a lot of times. Well, like, well how can I be ha- happy in heaven if I know that my family member or something like that is in hell? And, and or, we think suffering, like the ultimate evil in the modern world is suffering. You know, for the modern, for the modern man, nothing is worse than suffering. Right. I mean, cause, because we don't ever do that. I mean, that's uh, so foreign to us, at least in the first world, at least here in America and in other first worlds you know we go from our climate controlled house in our um you know like memory foam fantastic beds to into our climate controlled car into our climate controlled office where everything is like we're comfortable all the time right 
Yeah. If we're if we're hungry for like ten minutes, we got to do something about that. Okay. <laughs> right. You know what I'm saying? Like I don't even like to uh, be still. Like when I'm in the elevator, I pull out my phone. Okay, just to comfort myself. I'm not actually going to do anything on my phone. Right. I actually don't do that. I have a rule against cell phones in the elevator for several reasons. But anyway. I, it's just like suffering is that's the thing to avoid right and when other people suffer oh we need to we need to we need to help them can we like throw money at them or something you know like yeah and i would take that a step further to say i think probably one of the greatest atrocities um according to the moderns is for someone to suffer because um they can't have the self-creation of their will Right, they can't be who they who they desire themselves to be. Mm. Right, they that That's as as a modern person. So this is like if you look at like our culture and how we treat ethics now and morality. Basically, everything's based off consent. And if uh-huh. this person wants to do this thing, like who are you to come in and say they can't do that? It's completely relativistic. We're atomized, you know, autonomous moral universes um, that kind of engage in this kind of self-creation. The Supreme Court said I have the right to define reality for myself. Yeah, um, Justice Kennedy's. Uh, famous comment is is uh, yeah he says it at the heart of liberty um, you know I recently stated that it's actually at the heart of what's wrong with America um, <laughs> right. right that I have the right to define reality yeah and, and I, I think what's worse than that is that then um, I have the right to others that have to confirm me in that uh, pseudo reality right mm-hmm. and this is a lot of the problems that we're dealing with right now there's no objective order so I think that one of the things that's jarring for uh, Dante and I've read it with people in another group who would never get over this fact who actually would argue that that Dante's maturation throughout the Inferno is a negative, um, you know? Because by the end, he's now granted you have to be careful in the Inferno because it's the first of three books, and so his spiritual journey has to continue. So, like at the end, the pendulum swings a little bit too far, and he's like kicking the souls and you know increasing their punishments. In a certain way, you could argue like, well, that's that's good because that's what they deserve. Um, but I think he himself needs to kind of undergo a little bit yeah. more of a spiritual maturation. Yeah, because adding to the punishment, that is prideful because now you're saying, oh, God didn't give you enough. I mean, now you're kind of doing the same thing. Like, yeah, it's like, is he being used as an instrument of God's uh, wrath there or is he displaying his own, taking his in, own a, in a disordered yeah. way? And so I think you have to take Dante like he's really in the first... Uh, steps of his journey, even though he he does uh, mature, I think in, right. in the inferno. I mean, the the punishments in hell are eternal, right? And mm-hmm. so, like, and get worse. Yes, once yeah, once you get once the incarnation happens, it's going to be yeah. Once yeah, well, once the once we have the bodily resurrection, right, at the end yeah. of time, all then everyone's actually uh, embodied and they go back into hell, right? Because we you guys had the section on hell, so we have a private judgment right when we die. We go to heaven or hell or purgatory. And then at the... But purgatory is temporary. Correct. And everyone that goes to purgatory is going to go to heaven. Right. Right. Which is fascinating when you read the purgatory about who Dante puts there. Right. Which is kind of a fascinating conversation. And so, yeah, then all of a sudden, so all those, we have this like judgment of the nations and uh, the sheep and the goats and these things, Matthew 25. And then everyone goes back to where they were, assuming they were dead prior. And then all these people that were suffering in hell suffer more because now they're suffering embodied as opposed to simply souls because mm-hmm. we're composite creatures. Right. And like they were frozen, their souls are frozen, but when they have their bodies, now they're going to feel that more. In fact, he, uh, he talks about that. He mentions it in the Inferno. Mm-hmm. Something about we'll be more perfected. Right. Or... Everything's perfected. So if you go to heaven in a certain way, even though Aquinas is really nuanced on this, then uh, you will enjoy that more, right? Because it's it's uh, uh, it's not mediated through the senses, the beatific vision. 
but the body since it's joined to the soul right there's there's a certain delight there yeah um yeah the senses will be a part of the ultimate happiness in heaven overall yeah yeah and same thing with the punishments in hell uh everyone gets their body back except for who one one circle does not get their bodies back oh yeah i don't remember who that is those who misuse their bodies Yes. Okay. Yeah. Because they turn into trees. Well, they do get their body back, but they don't get to be uh, like embodied. Right. So the suicides. The suicides. Violence against self. That's also a great contrapasso. I thought it is. It's probably one of the clearest contrapasso. So they they misuse their body and life. And so obviously Dante's not having a pastoral approach to these things. And so if you do read it with the group, sometimes it, it can be jarring for people. And so obviously then they misuse their bodies and life. They're then deprived of even the bodily form, the human form in hell. They turn into these trees that are super sensitive, and when they're broken, uh, they bleed and cry and mm-hmm. do these things. And then, yeah, at the, at the end of time... In fact, th- the only way they can speak is when you break a branch. Right. Then, oh, they can like kind of speak out the he, hole. That he has a, yeah, and he has a wonderful thing that the blood that comes bubbling out of the branches is like when you try and use a log that still has sap in it in the fireplace. Yes. Right, and it just comes bubbling out. And he can hear it hissing. Right. Yeah. Uh, It was just incredible. But at the resurrection, they'll get their, like their skin will be hung from their branches or something. So they will get their bodies back, but it will just be hung on the branches of their tree, of the tree that they are. Which theoretically is going to be a source of pain for them. Right. Yeah, so their own body becomes part of their own contrapasso. Mm -hmm. Just... uh, in the beginning, when we first started reading it, uh, several people would be like, well, maybe maybe he's suggesting this, you know, like all this like really deep meaning. And I was a little skeptical, mm-hmm. certainly in the beginning, thinking, really, guys, I think that you're giving, Don, uh, you're giving him a lot of credit here. Right. As if like he was actually intended all of these super deep levels of meaning. I mean, mm-hmm. just amazingly deep you know because the um, the cantos the chapters if you want to call them very short yeah oh they're like a couple pages right um and then as we went on i realized no i was wrong he is writing with that level of depth it was Mm -hmm. absolutely incredible he's a master he's an absolute master i mean there's there's a reason why this is one of the great books I mean, I don't know how many years he spent pondering mm-hmm. this before he wrote it. It's it's clear that Dante was a, a absolute genius. Right. Um, that his level of thinking, his his understanding of things, the way he saw the world, was just on a much wider scope than what I than how I see the world. And he, so. Yeah, like that's just one thing I wanted to make sure to say before we, uh, before we walked away. Before I started giving my own theology, you know, <laughs> oh, yeah, I forgot about that. We should uh, come up with something else to talk about. <laughs> that's yeah, a great idea. Well, I think that. Um, yeah, I, I I would push that maybe even a bit further. That um, it's he's probably not one of the great books. He's probably one of the greatest books. What I mean by that is, he's writing right after Thomas Aquinas. Uh-huh. Um, it's prior. He writes prior to. Thomas Aquinas being canonized, so his his reliance on Thomas Aquinas throughout the structure certainly before he's popularized. 
In a lot of ways, yeah. I mean, he in you know, I mean, the Archbishop of Paris is trying to get him condemned, and you know, a lot of the things. So Dante takes some leaps here, which I think actually really play out for him. Uh, and then, and then, you know, when you get the paradise, takes some leaps that don't play out for him. Well, maybe, and uh, <laughs> maybe it just depends on you know how you look at it. Um, you know, saints in hell. He, he does like, put he does put a couple of saints. Saint in hell. Saint Well, so well, well, hold on. He doesn't hold say on. his we're name. Gonna, we're gonna make it through like one idea. So you're right. My <laughs> point here is we'll that we'll circle back. Right. My point here is that he's writing in the age of the Sumas, right? Mm-hmm. That all this knowledge has come together. And I don't think Dante's um, comedy is like the Summa of St. Thomas Aquinas in, in poetry. That's what it is. I mean, mm-hmm. that's really what it is. And I don't, I don't think anything comes close to try and take all those thousands of years of knowledge and virtue in the soul and bring them together and weave them kind of harmoniously as he does, right? This great harmony. I, I just don't think anything comes close. Yeah, like especially pros- when you think about the fact that in Italian, the whole thing rhymes. I mean, it's amazing <laughs> when we read it in English, you know, depending on the translation, um, it's going to rhyme more or less, but mostly less. You know, it, mostly it doesn't rhyme in English. And it's just so incredibly deep and rich. Just the things that he's able to say in so short, a, in, in like so few His words. Tercets. Yeah. Right. And then you think about the fact that when he wrote this, it was all in verse, and the whole thing is in rhyme. It just adds this whole extra mind blow mm-hmm. to the, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know if mind blow is a... <laughs> a we're just going to run with it. But yeah, w- when you fine. read it, your mind is blown so much that like right. you just say mind blow. Right. You can't think of better words that to say. That happens a lot in a small group. <laughs> <laughs> Someone's eyes just get just really a, wide. Just and imagine our go, small group. Yeah. You just go like, mind blown. The insights we have are just tremendous. <laughs> can just I just tell tremendous. you? Can I just tell you insights? Mind blow? <laughs> right. Yeah. No, I, I mean, and honestly, and that's, and when we talked about earlier about like the great books and as an adult, where do you start, uh, where do you start with children? I expressed to you guys uh, earlier off air that, that one of my goals is to educate my children to when the time they become adolescents, and I, I think they're capable of reading the comedy and that it would be a good for them, that they have the tools to actually read it. That they're not saying they're going like, yeah. oh, wait, who is this in mythology or who's this or what does he mean by this scripture? Because some of his scripture references are really subtle too, mm-hmm. right? Um, who's this? What's he doing? Like, I want them to be able to flow through it, not necessarily as like a master of everything, but like it's it's a familiar land to mm-hmm. them, right? They know these things and they can start to immediately go into the deeper levels, Whereas opposed to like the first time I read it, uh, I read it by myself. I real, I mean, yeah, Moose's notes were incredibly helpful, but I had to like reread it several times before I felt like I actually started to grasp what he was doing, just because so much of it was foreign. Can I send my kids to your house? Um, no, <laughs> but we can have. <laughs> Thank we, you for asking. We can start just, a little. Thought, uh, we'll start a, a child's uh, great books uh, circle, and we'll read and, and discuss these things. So, well, you guys do have uh, uh, Greek mythology assets, right? Now yes, to, to yes, help, to thanks to you. Yes, thank you so much well, for that book. So, uh, thank you. Yeah, yeah, it's a good book. It's a good book. Uh, Greek mythology by Dulieres, I believe. Because one thing about Dante's Inferno mm-hmm. is that he blends Greek mythology and like the saints and church history and Roman mm-hmm. history together in a way that was so seamless i had never seen it done before for instance and when you get to this the circle of hell for those who um are using the lord's name in vain you have uh, a pagan who blasphemes one of the greek gods 
Yeah, Zeus, Jupiter. Right. Greek gods, Roman gods, you know, it's kind of the same thing. But um, And it's just fascinating that... Yeah, that's his example of That's blasphemy. the example, because yeah. surely there's a thousand fantastic examples mm-hmm. of someone blaspheming the actual god. Right. And yet he chooses this person from Greek mythology who's blaspheming one of the Greek gods. Mm-hmm. Um, for the contrapasso, where he's burn, he's laying down on the burning sand, right? But still, like prideful and yeah. One thing is that it, we talk so about it was just diac- crazy. Yeah, one thing we talk about the diaconate uh, when we kind of because I I think that a lot of men are jarred when they see how he uses the Greek mythology and like is this not just intertwining Catholicism with paganism? Like, oh my gosh, don't show your Protestant friends this book. Like, this is what they're worried about, <laughs> right? You know. <laughs> I think that um, what we need to realize is that, and a lot of people were like, Wayne, if you read St. Augustine, he's like, all the pagan gods are demons. Don't have anything to do with them. Like, thank you very much. But then when we see kind of past the millennial point, right, is no one's believing in these gods anymore. And they almost get baptized into these stories of virtue that can be used to express things. Right. And then, because particularly you're getting Aristotle coming back and things like this, they kind of get used as, hey, you know what? Even the pagans could figure this out, right? So what happens? You go to blasphemy, and you're like, oh, right, well, here's going to be an example of someone who blasphemed against Jesus, and the example is a pagan who blasphemed against Zeus. And you can say, like, well, that's weird, but what you're realizing is, like, wait, if that guy gets punished because he blasphemed against what he should have known at least was a higher power by the natural reason of natural virtue of religion. Mm Mm-hmm. How much greater is someone going to be punished who blasphemes against Jesus Christ? Right. What you realize is that mm. the higher that you raise the pagans in nature, and this is what happened with the church with Aristotle. All of a sudden, here's Aristotle who can figure out all these things about virtue and the soul and et cetera by reason alone. If he can do that by reason alone, where should we go when we're perfected right. by grace? Okay, what if you blaspheme the being whose essay and essence are the same, right? right. Like Zeus, he doesn't have that, okay? Right. Like Zeus had a beginning. I mean, Zeus isn't even a good god, right? But the point there is that what we forget, particularly as moderns, again, is that there is a natural virtue of religion. You, by nature alone, should know that there is a higher power above you. And Mm -hmm. and to blaspheme that, out of your own pride, because that's what he does, right? Right. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's actually in the Sophocles plays. right? That That he's coming over the wall, and he doesn't need Jupiter anymore, right? He doesn't need Zeus, and he's struck dead. Also, Jove. Also, Jove. I. That's the one thing I learned that when we say by Jove, right, that we're actually swearing by Ju- by Zeus, by Jupiter, by Jupiter, yeah. And I did not know that. Right. Is that a phrase that you? It uh, makes me feel a little bit more guilty for <laughs> saying. Is that by a Jove. phrase that you use? I don't use it very often, but <laughs> I have said it. You know? It's like really kind of like eighteen hundreds. The thing British is, I gentlemen. just didn't realize. Like, I didn't realize. By Jove. I yeah. was swearing by a Greek god. Yeah, and then my know? monocle falls right. off, and then. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I yeah, I don't. We don't. Oh. Hear, we don't hear that one in the chancery very often. Okay. Dave, so let me ask you this: What was one of the like? What was the, the one thing that struck you when reading Dante for the first time uh, that you were like really took you back? That made me think the most. No, that was like that doesn't seem right. Usury can't be an answer. Okay. Um, yeah. Aside from usury, well, so we cut. You kind of mentioned it, um, Dante's progression from at first pitying the sins in hell to learning not to pity the sins in hell and i think that's that's rightly but there's um there's one instance where he 
it's not that he's not pitying the sin, the sins in hell, but he's reveling. It seems like, mm-hmm. at least, reveling over like the over their suffering. Like he's not just saying, "Oh, praise God," you know, "Praise God who made all things," you know, and praise Him for His divine justice. He's saying, "Like I want to, I want to see it. Like mm-hmm. I want." I like want to just mm, cause there's like a there's the a person sin, who had slighted him curiosity right a, it's like a, he wants to see it there's a person who had slighted him in life who he hates and it seems like he wants to see him suffering because of his own hatred for this person which that is disordered though we should say praise God for the the sufferings of the souls in hell not because of our hatred for them, but because of our love for God, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems like in the book, and it it reads as if he's relishing in their suffering, which which to me is a little disordered. But then Virgil praises praises Dante the Pilgrim mm-hmm. for enjoying the stuff, like watching. I mean, to me, it just seemed a little depraved. Yeah, I think there's multiple things going on there. I think, because I agree, it's it's a little jarring. You're like, wait, is this virtuous? Like, why are we doing this? So I, yeah, I think there are a few things. One, you know, recall that um, Dante's early in his own formation, mm-hmm. right? right. So we need to be careful about thinking about you know where that everything he does. It is it is towards the beginning, of, like not at the very beginning of the mm-hmm. book, but kind of right after he has learned his lesson about pitying the souls in hell, right? And I think. Yeah. Anyway, keep going. Yeah. So I, I, we have to be careful because he, he's, he's in the middle of his formation, you know, et cetera. Uh, I don't, I don't think at times uh, he's supposed to be an exemplar. Um, I think there is, I think, a true maturity that's starting to happen, right? I mean, you could argue that having pity for these souls um, is a greater mistake than uh, having a disordering understanding of the punishment that they're receiving, right? Right. So you have a disordered delight in it. Actually, you are, I mean, again, things that jar us as moderns, I, I think you are actually supposed to delight in it um, by the praise of God, mm-hmm. right? And that's what Aquinas will talk about, and that's why uh, the the damned, the punishment of the damned can't be an impediment to your enjoyment of heaven, uh, right? Because they're, they're re- the reception of justice is a good and a praiseworthy good, mm-hmm. uh, but one that uh, is difficult for our imaginations to grasp. So I think that, you know, he's, I think he's moving from uh, a lesser or a greater mistake to a lesser mistake. I don't think he's perfect yet. Um, when he goes through purgatory, it's really interesting because his maturity and spiritual maturation is much more explicit because he's actually marked with the seven sins that he then has to purge. Himself. As, yes, himself. He's marked with... Uh, I'm reading Purgatorio right now. Oh, you are? Yeah. You oh, are? Congrats. Yeah. I didn't know this. Yeah, congrats. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I don't know if you got Slow, to... Slowly, but I, I am. If, yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful book. And I actually think that it is even... The Inferno makes you think about the relationship between sin. I think that the Purgatory, because as you get there, every terrace has so many examples for each. So even like when you get to the first terrace, it's like everyone starts off with an example from Mary that can purge that sin. Like here's a contrary example to this sin. And then here's something from the pagan world, from the natural world that even you could use to do this. Hmm. And then when they're going up, Hmm. like the first sin that has to be purged, pride. Like purgatory is much more systematic than like in the Inferno. You're like, wait, why are we here now? And like, why is this going on? Yeah. So like on purgatory, the first terrace, they have a giant boulder on their back. 
it represents their pride. So they have to do what? Bend down. Carved into the ground are, I think, 13 examples of pride from scripture and from mythology that they're looking at as they're meditating. So again, this giant corpus of references about, you know, pride. And then as they start to be able to lift their backs and their heads, they can look at the wall, right? The the exterior of the mountain. And it's carved with examples of humility, right? And they can slowly lift up. And then when they get to the end, um, they're always singing a song. A bit, uh, there's a song that they're always singing that helps purge that sin. Then the angel declares uh, a beatitude. And then there's the angel at every single one. And then he does this all the way up. So this, like, for someone who gives homilies, it's an amazing resource of like, okay, here's the sin that's referenced in scripture. What's related to it? And he just there's this whole blossoming of things uh, that come out of it. Interesting. That, so, that's yeah, because the I imagine, having not finished the book, that purgatory would be a lot more relevant for us here in life than inferno. Because in the inferno, it's there's no hope, right? right? But but in life, we can still purge ourselves. And we should be seeking, actually, like those. That's that's the kind of action we should be seeking after, not just a contrapasso of like pure justice and suffering. But we should actually be seeking to do things that purge ourselves of the things yeah, we I, suffer with. I made the mistake one time of telling my professor that I greatly enjoyed the Inferno. I kind of enjoyed Purgatory, and I really actually did not like the Paradise. I found it quite boring. Uh, and he told me that we enjoy that which with we're uh, more familiar. Right. And I was like, oh, okay. Thank you. I hope you, you still please give me I an A. I will ask you just no still, more questions. Yes. Can I still please have an A? But <laughs> I actually do think most people just read the Inferno. And they can't. And actually Purgatory and uh, particularly Paradise are just not. They're so foreign, right? So I do think that, uh, yeah, a lot of people focus a lot on the Inferno. I think Purgatory only makes sense if you're actively trying to purge your soul. Right. Mm-hmm. If you actually are trying to live a life of, um, you know, configuring yourself to the cross of Christ, mm-hmm. yeah. this purgatory makes sense. Because if not, you're like, well, this is kind of a rehash of the Inferno and now they're just doing different things and I don't understand. And you miss Dante's brilliance of saying, no, look, this is a contrapasso when you're ha- being handed over to the sin. This is the contrapasso when you are being purged of it. And those two things are different. Mm-hmm. And also the souls in purgatory delight in it. Right. Mm-hmm. They want right. it. Right. Yeah. This kind of goes back to that kind of axiomatic thing of, uh, you know, the fires of hell and purgatory are the same. It's just, you know, the ones in hell fight against it and the ones in purgatory embrace it. Right. Right. So should we get into my contribution to I would love to hear to, it. To, to theology? Me, I have enough um, alcohol, so yeah, go for it. Can you just top them off a little bit? I'm good. I, he's, I'm good. He should be good. Okay, so... One of my uh, I was just saying that because he hasn't touched it. Right. It's one of my big hangups. I took some sips. Yes. Was that um, limbo? Right. Was in the uh, what do they call it of hell? The vestibule. Well, no limbo. The first level. Limbo is the first level of hell. Yeah. Okay. Proper level. Okay. Right. Yeah. You're right. It's the limb. You're right. So like I had a I had a problem with that. Right. Um, And I think. Part of that problem stems from conflating the limbo of the fathers right. with like what we might call a modern day limbo, which essentially is would be reserved only for unbaptized infants or like mm-hmm. or people who die before they're born. Um, you know, because if you are if you've if you've reached the age of reason, limbo seems 
like it's no longer an option for you, right? Like if you have committed, if you're capable of committing mortal sin, you know, you've reached that, that point in your development where you can say, no, I actually choose to reject God, which an infant cannot do. Mm-hmm. You know, even a, even like a two-year-old really can't do because they don't, I don't think they really understand what it is that they're doing and rejecting. They're, you know, just sub- subject to their passions in a way that an adult is not, right? Hopefully. I mean, I, I even think that's, I believe that's what the church's stance on two-year-olds is. That mm. you uh, know, I guess it's pretty hard on two-year-olds, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, that's, you know what, two-year-olds are pretty hard on us, so <laughs> maybe I right. get it. But um, so I think that's kind of part of my, my hang-up. Mm-hmm. But it, the fact that the little that I know of limbo is that it's described as a place of natural happiness. And, you know, that for me, definitions, mm-hmm. definitions are foundational in understanding what a thing is. Yeah, grammar. So because it's described as a place of natural happiness, the fact that happiness is like one of the two words one of the three words, place, I'm not counting, of, natural happiness, that it just doesn't seem like it should be, it should, that realm should belong to hell, which is, happiness and hell, to me, do not mix. It's like oil and water, they don't belong together. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me like limbo should be the vestibule of heaven, not the vestibule, and I know it's, I know Dante doesn't put it in the vestibule, but it doesn't seem to me like limbo is hell per se, right? even though he puts it there. And I understand, because we've talked about this, Deacon, you know, that in your your response, and rightly so, is that, well, do the souls in hell enjoy the beatific vision, which is kind of the definition of heaven. Right. Not kind of. That is the definition of heaven. Mm-hmm. And no, they don't. So I, I see why Dante doesn't ascribe them to heaven. That makes sense. Um, and so as I was thinking about this, the, you know, the limbo of the fathers, you could be an old man, have lived a long life, and end up there. Everybody did for a long time, you know, until Jesus rose from the dead, descended into the... De- until he rose, descended into the dead, right, and took people... I know I didn't get that in the right chronological order. He died, descended into hell, then rose, right? I get it. Um, <laughs> but oh man. But so there's the limbo of the fathers and like <clears throat> I don't know. Does the do you know does the church say that the limbo of the fathers and that this more modern idea of limbo for like unbaptized infants are the same? Well, yeah, so okay, let's let's see if we can parse things out. I don't so, want to I don't want to get anything wrong off the be- off the bat. Yeah, so just for those who aren't familiar, right? So there's when um, it's funny because, well, right off the bat, right, everyone in the Old Testament goes to hell. Everyone born before Jesus goes to hell. They right? go to the, the place of the dead. Everyone goes to hell. They go to hell. And so, <laughs> right, because they're deprived of the beatific vision. And so what happens here? Well, okay, so this is called um, limbo of the fathers, right? Because Moses is there, Adam's there, um, you know, et cetera. Um, you get uh, Abraham's bosom. This is the same place, right? But I don't so, think we can per se call it hell because at at Jesus's transfiguration. Okay, let me parse it out. 
Okay. You have Moses appearing, right. you know, glorified almost. I mean, he, he appears to the apostles in what they perceive mm-hmm. as a glorified state. He's not like a regular dude. Right. You know, he's at least a little bit glorified. Is he like heaven glorified? No. You know, no. But they think he's yeah. glorified. So, are you there? He, they think he's glorified. Okay. So, okay. Let's just, because let's just going to move through kind of what the church teaches, right? Welcome to the Catholic Mansion. Very so, good. Very good. <laughs> uh, I love you guys. So, um, yeah. So, there is this Abraham's bosom. And when we say that, what do we mean? Because I think this is where you really have to parse this out. In so far as like, okay, well, Christ talked about this, right? Because we we miss this, and I talk about this in our CIA. It's like, okay, here is um, the the poor man Lazarus. He dies. We have the rich man, etc. And then they describe, but they see each other after they've died. Yeah, and they see each other over like a canyon. And one of them is in hell, and the other one is in Abraham's bosom. Right. Well, hell, in so far as we understand it, as a place of torment. Right. right? So one, but they're not in the same... It's very clear that they're not in the same place. I No, I think they are in the same place. No, because there is a they great... Can, they, can, they can see each other. They can hear each other. They're just surrounded by a chasm. I mean... But there's a great chasm between them. They, well, they, can't, they can't go... It's even impossible for one to go to the other place. Okay, but those are different distinctions. Whether or not you can actually go to that place doesn't mean you're actually in a separate place. Right? I mean, it's all one big... I mean, they can see each other. They can talk to each other. You, they can They're hear. not in the same place because he said, "I can't even get to you." Yeah, I I don't want to equivocate here. So just because like if we're in a room, and I can't get to the other side of the room, that doesn't mean that we're not in the same building. Like yeah. we're they're in the same place. Yeah, right. But I, I mean, just because I can't move to that location doesn't actually mean that, like that that specific location doesn't mean that we're not actually sharing. To me, the, know, the fact same that atmosphere. To, the fact that there's that kind of distinction, a mm-hmm. chasm. It's clearly a distinct to me. Well, they're very distinct. That's, there, there's a distinction here that, like, mm-hmm. okay, if you were over here with us, right, I could get to you, but you're not here with us. You know, the, the, there's okay. a distinction here that's being made. I don't mean okay, to so say you, that, you, like, you hold on to the chasm, and we'll see where we go with it. Okay, okay? you hold on to very, the chasm. Very good. So, in Abraham's, so in the story, right, they can see each other, they can hear each other, etc. One is suffering torment, and the other one is at peace. Right, he's literally laying on Abraham's chest. Right. Uh, in many ways, this is also Sheol, right? The, right, the, the place, place of, of the, the dead. dead. And so this is like what the medievals will call the limbo of the fathers because then all the fathers went down, etc. And this is what is most properly understood as, and this is why I feel very comfortable calling it this, is this is what we mean in the creed when we say Christ descended into hell, hell right? And so, <laughs> and so Christ descends into hell. Well, what does he mean? Well, you get some really terrible it's really the, the theologies. Dead. It's it's He's going into the limbo of the fathers. Mm-hmm. Right, and there's this, there's he's going because then our first pope in his epistle talks to us that he went down there and preached the gospel to the dead. So I think like using the term like this is hell. He went to hell. He preached to the gospels in hell is is very apostolic and in scriptural. Right. The question then is is that then he very clearly takes people out of that limbo. But right? but to make a distinction, he wasn't going to Judas. He wasn't going to who was our you know. Yeah, the souls that he preached to are the ones that are in that limbo. Not of the in, we're not talking about hell proper. We're not talking about the place of the damned. We're yeah. talking about the limbo of the fathers. Maybe I think when you talk about hell proper, I that, think that's modernly a, when we say hell, right. we don't mean like Sheol. We don't mean like the place of the dead. 
I think in a modern, like our modern mind, when we say hell, we mean the people who are who are damned in hell for all eternity. Right. But God help us if we predicate our ideas based off what we think of as modern. Well, but it just just so that our <laughs> the thing is the thing is, Deacon, the only people who listen to this podcast are modern people. Well, that's why we have these things, right? So my point here is that the creed. Okay, you can hold on to your distinctions. The creed says Christ descended into hell. Right. right, it is a place in hell mm-hmm. because there's no other place. I mean, where are they going to go? It's not purgatory because they can't. They don't have grace. You have to have grace to go to purgatory. Yeah. Well, there was no there was no purgatory yet, and you can't go you can't go to heaven prior because you have no sanctifying grace. So you go to hell. There's not like you know other options. Do you think when he when he like liberated people from uh, Abraham's bosom, mm-hmm. did he just take a lot a lot of them to purgatory? I mean, it, or do you think that like those souls, right? enjoyed a special purification that's a great question so we're gonna table it so we can finish the question because we don't know well you finished the, let's finish the questions that we asked right, right. i know i get i get more <laughs> questions than i do answers. what is like so what happens so i think the question because i think i think limbo in certain ways deserves a defense in a lot of ways because um most of the church has believed this well so you get the you get the limbo of the fathers and so it's very clear that it, Christ goes there, he preaches to the damned, and then he takes the damned up with him into his father's house, right? He preaches the gospel. So the question then is, does that place endure as a place in hell that can still receive souls post-Christ? So that's that's the question. Yes. Okay, that that is the question. So then, um, and then obviously like the kind of uh, perennial example of this is, what do you do with unbaptized children? Right, which again, as moderns, we don't like to discuss. Right. Because just to clarify, it seems like it's possible that that Abraham's bosom almost transforms into purgatory. No, I mean, but like the people who would who were going there before, they're not damned. They were in a like a place of waiting, um, a place of like right. what could what what you could almost call purification. Right. Like, but they don't undergo it there. But you are you are correct insofar as one of the big distinctions is is that those who went there prior to Christ would still have hope. They had the hope of uh, right, right, which exactly. is which I think changes that dynamic of um, what is the nature of this place, right? Because if they still have hope of the beatific vision, or really of salvation, and depending on you know what they how they can view that, but regardless, hope endures, right? That's going to be a different. Uh, eternal right. that, mindset. Than, I think that's what I mean. Right, yeah, that, that, those go in. So then, I mean, but what ends up happening is the question is: Does this place endure as a place that God can send souls to in hell, as a place of mercy? Right. So basically, you are a virtuous so and so, virtuous pagan, even according to Dante, virtuous Muslims. Right. Can is this a place that God can send you, and basically you lived a virtuous life according to? Um, you know, whatever, but then you weren't baptized, right? You didn't actually have sanctifying grace, and so you go there, according then also with all the infants. I think what's interesting in church history is we have to realize that this is somewhat of, I don't want to say a compromise, but like this is not St. Augustine's position. Sure. St. Augustine's is, you just go straight to hell. Everyone straight to proper, tormented, grief, hell, hell, right? right? And so... uh, Lake Lake of fire. Right. So... This doesn't really sit well. And so the church, this understanding then, I think that limbo, no, 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 limbo. So yes, because of the economy of salvation, we can't say, it seems odd to say, that those who are unbaptized receive the beatific vision. 
Because according to the economy of salvation and the sacraments that we have to work with, that's not what we were told, right? To be saved, you have to be baptized. So the medievals, right, would say, okay, but God's mercy endures. And so then those people can go to limbo because we know it's a place, right, in hell. And so they can go there. Um, this seems to be very clear uh, with Aquinas and others about unbaptized infants, right? How is God merciful to them while also adhering to the economy of salvation? Okay, well, they can go to this place. Dante takes it a step further into this place that then can not only maintain pagan souls pre-Christ, like Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, but then can receive souls post-Christ as adults who lived a virtuous life but were still damned, right? So like uh, Saladin, right, the, the Muslim general who was known for yeah. his virtue, goes to limbo. Um, you know, a, a lot of uh, Romans, right, go, go there. Um, and so he has these people post-Christ that are going to limbo, which is really kind of an interesting thing from his own uh, soteriology. And from the medieval mindset, it's, ex it's an extension of God's mercy. And right. limbo becomes... Uh, the normative understanding of this until 1960-something. Vatican II casts a lot of doubt on it, um, and then you've got the International Theological Commission issued a document on limbo. Um, I can't remember, in the 90s or the 2000s. And basically, the theological problem endures. It the, persists, it, right. It, it persists, but basically, as moderns, we just say, you know what, we're we are actually very comfortable just saying we don't know that those people, well, we don't, it's not that we say we don't know. We say that, uh, you know, we'll, we'll cast their, their souls upon, uh, the mercy of God, which means we don't right. know. Yeah. But I think that, well, I think I, I'm not sure that document just says, I don't know, but that's um, what they could have said. They could have just said like, look, God's super merciful. We right. don't know. They could have. I think the problem is, is that you're dealing with the I think weight. it would have cleared it up a lot more if they had just said that. But for, from Dante's perspective, he doesn't actually add a lot of clarity because he has pagans going to purgatory and to heaven, right? So it's not like, oh, baptism is the thing, the dividing line here, because right. he has pagans also going to heaven who yeah. weren't baptized. Yeah, he knows that God can act outside of the sacramental system. Right. So which if you start I, which reading, I agree with. So if you start reading Purgatory, right, they climb right out of literally a hellhole, and they come out the Purgatory, and there's this guy sitting there. Do you remember who it was? Uh, no. Oh, oh, uh, it was a guy who was like, should have been in hell, but he was like established as the governor of... Uh, like the lowest ring. I don't remember who. I don't remember who it was. It's Cato. It's a Rome. It's a Roman statesman, and what's even more, so it's a pagan, and he's right at the beginning of purgatory, which means that when everyone goes up through purgatory, he's going to be the last one. So the last person to go the, into heaven will be a pagan. All the comments, all the like the commentary is like, mm -hmm. very debatable. Is like, oh, is he actually going to get in, or is he just assigned? He's getting in as like a punishment. You know, is he actually when mm -hmm. it's when it's all done going back down to hell? Right, it was unclear, and he's he's um. I think he's getting in. He's getting in because of how he's Dante, not. He's not a ruler of the realm of hell. Well, he's in purgatory, and everyone right, who goes there. to purgatory is going to go to heaven. That's what I think. But also the understanding of why I think what's interesting is you're correct is that Dante will put pagans inside purgatory. He even has pagans inside of paradise. God can work outside his sacramental system, and so. There's certain pagans then exhibit certain virtues that Dante then says merits for catechetical reasons. Again, again, 
just like you can't get wrapped around the axle on the Inferno being an actual map of hell, you don't want to get wrapped around the axle on why is this Roman here in purgatory? Right. I don't believe pagans can go and cool it, take a deep breath, and realize yeah, what is, what's the catechetical reason for him being there? The catechetical reason is, because we've kind of forgotten all these things, is that Cato uh, was... Didn't uh, he commit suicide? Yes. He yes. did. He He's committed suicide. suicide. Yeah. He's a suicide. Yes. Uh, Dante's brilliant. So... <laughs> What I, for Cato is is that Cato would rather commit suicide than live under the injustice. It was the reason why he committed suicide that like is it, it reminded me of like the sepulcher seppuku like of the Japanese I forget I don't know like oh yeah like I do not say that word right I don't even pretend <laughs> to say that word right I don't think but Adam I've, or I, th- I had I any doubt about it I've seen them. I was like oh yeah that's definitely <laughs> but, the but correct that's pronunciation totally Japanese but yeah. I know guys because I've seen the Last Samurai with Tom Cruise okay and I know about the sword stomach thing okay yeah, that's great. So moving on. So there's, um, but but that's not suicide. When like in the like with that idea of Japanese, they're not committing suicide. They're like it's a it's an honorable death. They were like defeated in battle, and instead of and their enemies, because instead of just killing them, right. their enemies are giving them this honor of this type of death. They're going to die. Who like who is it that kills them? It's the enemies. Okay, they chop their heads off, right? But it's, uh, you know what I'm saying? There's a distinction here, and I think this is what Dante is sort of getting at. Cato kills himself. Yeah, but why does Cato but kill himself? Be- uh, because it's like he's going to die, but instead, he, I don't remember the exact specifics, but um, instead of like uh, giving himself over, he would rather die like as a, as like a faithful servant mm-hmm. than as... Well, he'd rather. Oh, yeah, I mean, like, so help, he, help me out because so I honestly he would honestly rather die right under the Rep- the Roman Republic than live under the tyranny of the new empire, right, Julius Caesar? Because he's right there at that that. This point. is the weird thing about Dante because, this like, is, the the blend. Well, this is one of the things. A lot of weird things because this is like the blending of sort of pagan mythology with Christian ideas. Because mm-hmm. the the as a Christian, we would say. No, you're not the you're not the master of your own fate, right. you know. And like, no, it's better for you to live according to God's will. God's will is that you continue to live. You, you know what I mean? He's not Dante. Assuredly, is not saying kill yourself if you know it, you know if uh, like an oppressor is about to take mm-hmm. over your country, kill yourself and you go to heaven. That's not the lesson that Dante is trying to right. to give here. Yeah, Cato, uh, I mean, there's a few things at work. I think one is is that it's also particularly what Cato, Cato cuts himself open in his stomach and kind of tears himself open. Um, and then like the his servants find him, right, just because you nailed that earlier. So um, his Super servants cool. find him, cool. and then he, uh, they mend him up, and then he wakes back up, and then he rips himself back open again. And you know, the dies. entire um, staff of... Um, Babylon B did this when Trump lost the election. Okay. And um, in fact, they tweeted about it later. That's good. <laughs> so he he actually makes this um, sidestepping all that. He makes this beautiful phrase that he hopes that his blood will redeem the nation. Right? He actually gives what if you took it out of the context seems to be a very christological sure. statement. Right. And I think that 
yeah, Dante is trying to teach us something there. I think also you mentioned earlier is like Christians, what would we view? I think one thing that Dante has an assumption of that we've kind of lost is the providential role of Rome, right? Right. That there's this, that pagan Rome, imperial Rome coming together with Christian Rome, and this is the seat of both temporal power and apostolic power. Mm-hmm. And so for him, anyone who's connected then to a healthy understanding of Rome, what Rome should be, how this temporal power and spiritual power should be helping to govern us towards our final end is going to be really high on the chart here for Dante. So even though Aristotle is the master of all who know, and he pulls from Aristotle more than anyone else, he's got several Romans that are going to end up being in purgatory. And I mean, he's got a Roman emperor in paradise as an example of a just ruler. Right. Yeah. Emperor uh, Trajan. But Caesar is in limbo. Right. Which is the complicated understanding, I think, that um, the Republic, in certain ways, was uh, superior, right? Was it, was the Republic superior to the Empire, right? And so I think there's questions then about how Dante structures that, but because he tends to favor people who favored the Republic, right? And you're like, oh, okay, but then he has an emperor in heaven. So it, it's a little murky, right? He understands that Rome needs to be um, the temporal power, Right, he's in a fractured, broken Italy now that is, you know, literally dying for some kind of unified deal, some kind of unified regime, right? Government to help people move towards their end, and he critiques the papacy all the time for taking on too much temporal power, mm-hmm. right? But arguably, it's doing that because there is no centralized temporal power, and right. so, you know, parsing out how he thinks how he deals with the Romans uh, is difficult on Republic Imperial side, but at the end of the day, he holds Rome to be sacred. And this is kind of what I was talking about before where I said in the beginning when I was reading this book and people were talking about, oh, I think this is what he's meaning, like all these deep Mm -hmm. levels. And my initial thought was, guys, I think you're just, I think you're giving him too much credit here. But then the more you read, the more you realize, no, he actually is operating on all these levels. Like, no, it's it's not a stretch to say that this is what he meant. (laughs) But if I was any good at actually introducing the, uh, the Inferno, we probably would have mentioned how to read it, which is, <laughs> right? So if I, was, if I was any good at the topic that you invited me on, um, I would have mentioned that, yeah, he, he actually writes a letter to his patron that you have to read the Inferno as you read scripture, which is another reason it's a phenomenal book to read. because it, it Which it, are the four, the four senses, right? The four senses, the quadriga. Right? Quadriga is a, a chariot with four horses, right? And hmm. so uh, you've got your literal, uh, your allegorical, your moral, and your anagogical. Right, and he tells his patron, like, this is the same way that you read, right, the Inferno, or the, the entire comedy. So, okay, so just I want to round out my own contribution here. <laughs> it's still ha- have we started? I started. Okay, yeah, yeah, I got it. I, I got, I got sure. a lot of it out this there is because the Japanese suicide theme, right? No, no, oh, oh. No, no, no. no, the seppuku <laughs> is now no something else. I like you for many reasons. One of them is because I don't think you have any shame, but it's just, <laughs> I'm very it's really good. At least I'm very brave. I do actually have some sure. shame, but I'm yeah. I'm pretty brave. If if I'm not, you like, really do just sally forth out there. I just you know what I'm not I'm not scared. Right. I'm not afraid to do it. But anyway, it's still I still have this thing. Okay. Based on the church's definition, and and once again, this is my own understanding of the church's definition of what limbo is. And we're back to this. And I have learned that can be fallible. Okay, I have learned that sometimes my understanding 
is just it's wrong okay it's it's just wrong um but because it it describes limbo as a place of natural happiness to a certain degree not and if it had said natural contentment something like that to me like the word contentment would be more compatible with hell um it's not that oh not that things are bad but you're content but because it says happiness right. that to me implies uh, does like, it actually say happiness i don't know that's what i'm saying like that's my understanding is so uh, I, I i would push, I, i've listened to catholic radio and like i hear people talk right, about you listen to talk theology about the body as a child right exactly and, christopher yeah. west i mean like you can blame him <laughs> i'm more than happy for you to blame Christopher West for anything oh, yeah. that I don't I, understand properly. We are moving on. So I think that, okay, so let me... But let me, you understand the difference yes. between happiness and contentment. I think that, yeah, I think we're hung up a bit on happiness. And there's there's something, there's a few things that I think are worth noting. Okay. One is, is that Dante does talk about it, a phrase he uses, if, if memory serves, is untormented grief. Untormented grief. So I think that... I'm just going to hide my glass over here. So I think I, I, I want to be careful here that we don't put limbo. Untormented grief. grief. I don't. I, Who I wanna, said? And that's that. I think that's actually Dante's. If okay. memory serves. That's Dante's phrase. He says he hears the sighs of untormented grief. So but, I want to make sure. Hold but on, to be hold, fair, Dante. Giving it. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. So okay, yeah. I think I want to make sure that we don't put limbo like in a vacuum. Right. Because. Of, of kind of like how we would view a paradise on earth versus um, one that ends up being in hell and, and kind of uh, we're probably equivocating on certain things because there's two things that come to mind. One is, is that they are aware, at least in some way, that they are being deprived of the beatific vision. Sure. And it does not seem to me that you can be aware of that and have a perfect natural happiness. And so we need to make distinctions between imperfect happiness and perfect happiness, which is one we even make uh, in our, our earthly pilgrimage, right? And so let's say, just for the sake of argument, that it is a place that has some imperfect level of happiness, right? I think there's two things that play into that. One is that they know they're deprived of the beatific vision. Mm-hmm. And so I think this is why one of the reasons that Dante talks about it as untormented grief, right? They weren't, they weren't pulled up to heaven with Christ. They know in some capacity that they're being deprived of something. The second one is, is that the natural object of natural happiness is God. And so it seems difficult to me that even if they are free from all physical torment, I'd be really cautious about saying that people in limbo had like, you know, a perfect natural happiness because your perfect natural happiness has to satiate on God in your natural sense. Oh, I wouldn't say perfect natural happiness. Well, okay. So I think that they can have some kind of, um, you know, it depends on what kind of word you want to use because um, paradise can solicit, you know, different things. But I think the point there is that it's a place in which, um, at least for Dante, because I, I want to stick close to a text that I've read on this uh, lately, that it is a place that where they suffer grief, but they are free from torment. And they certainly can have some kind of happiness because you see them engaging in conversation. You see them welcoming Dante. I mean, there are delights that they can sure. enjoy yeah. that are not, you know, you're not privy mm-hmm. to if you're in a different hell or right, a different circle. And so, yeah, I think, I think we can kind of parse this out that I, I, we can't put them in a vacuum where it's like, oh yeah, they have, you know, natural happiness 
without really taking into consideration, well, they know they're deprived of their supernatural end, and there's no hope for it, which then is, by definition, right, hell. And then also the, the object of their natural happiness is God, and in a certain way they're even deprived of that. Mm-hmm. Um, or at least there's no way, in, in my, again, just kind of talking off the top of my head, there's no way that it seems that that can be perfect. Right. I mean, I think it's also important to remember that Dante is not seeking to write an encyclical, right? He, he's mm-hmm. seeking to, like, convey a truth, certainly. Um, I mean, once again, he puts seemingly a canonized saint in hell, St. Celestine V. Yeah, he, uh, I mean, I think that... He doesn't name him, right? which is good. <laughs> if he had, like, the whole work may have been viewed with, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, it could have ruined everything that he did. But um, so I don't think that it's necessary to say, like, oh, well, Dante says this about purgatory. I'm more concerned about what does the church say about purgatory and admittedly... You mean limbo? Yeah, yes. Limbo. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Yes, limbo. So uh, once again, I need to go and read the documents myself because I don't know actually that the the church says the words natural, place of natural happiness. Um, And I don't... And certainly I would make a a distinction between perfect happiness... And just happiness in general, but to me, contentment is is compatible with hell. Happiness is not because on the on the one hand, contentment is like okay, uh, there's just nothing negative about it. Happiness does seem to imply th- there are like positive attributes associated with it, and like um, you were bringing up the which I think is a good point about, okay, the people in Purga- Thank in, you. in Limbo, they're very aware that they don't have the beatific vision. Just hard stop right there. Right. Thanks. But, Deacon, you are also very aware that you do not have the, the beatific vision, and yet I would imagine that you're happy. You know, you're, not, you're, you're more than content in this life. So, to me, if we can experience happiness, true happiness in this life, more than contentment, Mm-hmm. And yet we ourselves are very aware that we are deprived of the beatific vision. How much more so for the souls in an, in the eternal state, what, whatever those eternal states may be, that it seems to me fitting that... So my contribution, just so that we can finally get it on the table, was that... It'd be nice to articulate this with yeah, great man, clarity. Yeah, man, this has been... This is it. That's great. Okay. We, so like, if, you're, if, you, if, you, if you've listened this long... I'm going like, to finally put it out there for you. Wow. <laughs> was that the limbo, there is like this limbo of the fathers. There was the old limbo. There's a new limbo, which in my estimation is basically just for uh, for like infants who aren't born, you know, like, or for who, you know, like die immediately after birth, mm-hmm. whatever, where it just, it's, it just seems unfair. You didn't even have a chance. It wasn't even physically possible for you to be baptized. Your parents would have baptized you the second you were born if they, right. knew, if they knew your life was at risk. Okay, like out of justice, it seems, it just doesn't seem fair, right? So, but how can we say that they're in hell? Or how can we say that they're in heaven? Because, yeah, you're right. How could they have the beatific vision? Well, I was thinking about it. I said, well, possibly... God's mercy is endless. Perhaps he has a purgation process for this 
particular limbo, what would that be called? Limburgatory. Limburgatory is my contribution. I want it trademarked, please. Okay, so that's very good. So I think that trademark yeah. Limburgatory. So I'm gonna end on I'm gonna end on this because I I cannot believe we made people wait that long. For Limburgatory? For Limburgatory. I tried to get it in. I tried to get it in. You're using we as in we, like... Harrison kept making good objections and good side (laughs) points. Okay. I was just trying to talk about Limburgatory. I don't... Well, so I feel my uh, contribution to the Great cheese, Outside of just kind of like, um, you know, leading us, the blind leading the blind. But I do feel like we had some good conversation. Adam, I'm not talking to you. I think I said three words. <laughs> yeah, you were real quiet. You got to help me out some, a little bit, would you? Just help me out a little bit. So I th- I would just end on this because I, I always would be sensitive to, um, like, I, I don't really want, in great contrast to some other things tonight, I don't ever want anything I say uh, to be Harrison's great idea that he's coming sure. up with, right? I want it to be the voice of the church. So it's not going to be satisfactory to, like, our conversation, but, like, in the Baltimore Catechism, which is, you know, Pretty, pretty good. Pretty, pretty good. good. Yeah. When it talks about per, when it talks about limbo, right? It talks about actually where do persons go, such as infants who have not committed actual sin and who, through no fault of their own, die without baptism. So the answer it gives is persons such as infants who have not committed actual sin and who, through no fault of theirs, die without baptism, cannot enter heaven. But it is the common belief that they will go to some place similar to limbo, where they will be free from suffering, though deprived of the happiness of heaven. So, so that's that, the closest the, we get to. That's the closest I know off the top of my head besides Dante to turn to to get. I, yeah, I think that's. I think I'm glad you said that because, for me, the big hang-up is mm-hmm. the phrase "natural happiness." I mean, I think maybe instead of looking at it as a positive, right? Like, right. Do they have happiness? I think there's probably maybe uh, a, a more of a safe harbor to simply talk about the negative, which is. Uh, that Dante and Baltimore Catechism seem to be comfortable saying, which is that they are free, um, free from, from torment, suffering, free from right. the sufferings of hell. Right, torment, right. sufferings. Even though Dante seems to allude that because there is grief and there's sighs, right? There's a certain type of suffering because they're in hell. Yeah, but it seems to be one without, um, without a contrapasso. Based on what you just read, my like need, like natural reaction, desire for removing limbo from from hell Mm -hmm. it doesn't exist anymore like i need to go back i want to it does make me want to go back and read um what the church has actually said did you because you said that they put something out like after vatican ii or something yeah the international theological commission took up the question of limbo and said and and has a whole article on it about you know should that be the approach the church takes and it was really after that document i mean limbo is not mentioned at all in the 1992, 1994 catechism, right? Uh-huh. So that document particularly was kind of a death knell to limbo being discussed inside a modern theological context. Right. And so if you, even to the point that if you try and bring up limbo in like, you know, modern conversations and et cetera, people will talk about, you know, that the, the church repudiated that in that document because it's not doctrinal per se, right? And so it's it's kind of the, it's the church and the saints for over a millennia trying to answer a difficult question, which is, what do you do with those who uh, are not baptized, but it seems a great injustice to just throw them into, you know, hell. Into hell proper, proper, right. Right, right. tormented hell. Uh, Augustine didn't seem to have much problem with it, but 
uh, by the time you get to Aquinas and, and Dante, there is this understanding that, no, there's there's this place of mercy they, they can go to. And that endures. I mean, the Baltimore Catechism, right, late 1800s. I mean, that endures for a long time. Right. Uh, until actually just, just quite recently. Very good. I will go and read that because I want my opinions to be informed by <laughs> those things uh, vastly more than my own like Namely feel, the church. Like my yes, exactly. The church. <laughs> uh, even if it's not infallible, which I don't believe that the No, it's an advisory opinion. I mean, it, exactly. It's not infallible at all, but um, those are the things that I seek to inform my own opinions on. Right, which are always good to do, you know, prior to voicing our own opinions. Yeah. Look, I read Dante and I was like, no, I got an opinion about this. Okay. Well, you've you've made that really clear tonight. Limburgatory. It's a, <laughs> it's good. for real. Limburgatory it hashtag. Good. It's for Th- real. Thanks for thanks. Thank you, Deacon. <laughs> <laughs> I always enjoy it. Thank you guys. Are we still recording? <laughs> Hi, this is Bishop David Condorla of the Diocese of Tulsa in Oklahoma. So let us pray. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thy intercession was left unaided. Inspired with this confidence, I fly to thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy, Hear and answer me. Amen.